Welcome to the Fabricators Coach Podcast, where we believe that every fabricator deserves to have a business that not only makes the money, but also gives them time to enjoy it. In each episode, our goal is to share real information that you can take action on and use today, information that if you will use it, can help you reduce the chaos in your business, help you make more money, and help you get your life back. The article we're gonna talk about is one that came out first of this month from uh, in Slippery Rock Gazette. Uh, The title of it is, How Much Work Can My Shop Handle? If you've not read it yet, you can hit uh, fabricatorscoach.com, select the blog menu item, and find a copy there. Or you can go right to slipperyrockgazette.net, hit their current issue, and it will show up there as well. This is uh, number five in a 12-part series for this year. I got to thinking toward the end of last year, when I ran a shop, Christmas was always, that was always, the holiday season was the toughest part of the season because all the, as I like to say, all the sins of the past, (laughs) all the things we didn't do well during the year and all the challenges that we had seemed to get a lot more intense during the holidays because that was that was really our busiest, hardest season. And what I got to thinking through was, all right, what are some things we can do to to help make the holiday season for 2022 better than for 2021? So I put together a, a series of articles to walk through some of those aspects. And the whole idea is to help you work more on your business and not just work in your business because that's really, as we all know, I think that's where we make the gains is when we can get our get our hands out of the stone, uh, stop quoting, stop selling, uh, stop installing, stop solving, you know, answering questions like the Shell Answer Man and spend time thinking about how do we make things better? And that's, that's how businesses move forward. The ones that I've worked with over the years that get to a certain size and plateau, it's, it's mainly because they haven't figured out how to step step back a little bit, get their head above the fray and start working on the business. So trying to do my part and just try to help offer some suggestions on how to do that. How many of you, when you look at your business, I think as we've kind of chatted a little bit before we got started, uh, most of you sound like you're pretty busy these days. I know, Dan, you haven't been in this uh, a super long time, but in general, as you guys look at your business, even though you're busy, how many of you are noticing that your profit isn't what it used to be and maybe not what you think it probably should be. Well, I would, I would think everyone think it's not as, as good as it could be. Okay. How, uh, to, to what degree do you think? Well, I mean, we're busier. So sales are up. Those costs are up some too all across, but you would hope in, you know, busier year that you're up 30% over last or two years ago, you would make more. Yeah. Well, you certainly would, wouldn't you? Yes. Okay. All right. Any anybody see anything any different? And I, I think it's it's pretty common. The folks that I'm talking to, inflation is just chipping away at profit. Uh, those those costs keep going up, and it feels like your margins are getting squeezed. Um, you guys seeing a lot of that in your business? Anybody? Yeah, without question. You know, it's a lot of the costs on the materials been if if our arms aren't around it, it's been really hard to correlate that to it's just going on out of the bottom off our bottom line. Okay. So what what type of uh, can you give me an idea, Dan, of what sort of increases you're seeing? What's what's that what's that impact looking like? Well, I mean, we're 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 doing a little bit of importing, so uh, some of the importing costs from overseas have, have almost exceeded the cost of material. So um, it's been really difficult to be able to juggle that and know 
what what you should be causing based charging based on those versus what the market can hold. Um, those are two totally different things. So we've uh, we've tried to navigate that well, but it's been it's certainly a challenge. Yeah, certainly, no question about that. Anybody seeing anything different? Anybody have any any unique ways that they're dealing with some of those things to try to try to manage it? Uh, you know, you try try to pass on as much as the cost. Try to charge a little more, but the market's not that elastic. Where especially if you're doing builder work where they won't accept too much and then they'll start looking for someone. Yeah, no question. You know, they'll, they'll accept a little bit, but you know, cost increases if you're buying material domestically. I mean, everyone's going up next week from what I hear. Up first of the year, natural stones just kind of been up and down. Quartzes have just been steadily rising, what, 2% here and there. Yeah, kind of like bulling a frog in some respects, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, through last year, they went up last summer. Most of them, I can't even remember what they do, 4 or 5% the first of this year. And then they just steadily rise. And they say generally it's shipping costs. Yeah. That's what they attribute it to. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think I think everybody I've talked to is, is pretty much seeing the same thing. Uh, another thing that I, I hear a lot from owners is that complex jobs are getting a lot more common. You know, the raised bar tops, the strange oh, yeah. angles, the big curves, that sort of thing. Are you folks seeing a lot of that too? Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, construction's up and everything's getting nicer. It also means generally our average ticket is rising, which is good too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you're, you're not selling as much just level one granite like you used to. And they're, they're starting there and going up from, that's just establishing a budget and they're going from there up. So, but the work has been harder. And of course, finding people to do it has become harder as well. Yeah, I understand that. You know, sometimes I think uh, some of these folks who have been um, fortunate enough to, to work from home and still draw a paycheck, I think they spend probably half their time trying to think up crazy ways to, to make uh, a countertop fabricator's life tough. <laughs> it seems like so. And then the other thing I'm hearing a lot from folks is that this new animal of porcelain, this compacted centered stone really seems to be a, a, a complexity that's that's having a big impact on shops. Are you focusing a lot of that? We've done a little porcelain. We've done, we do probably four projects a year. We cut porcelain twice in the last probably three weeks. It's a, it's a, it's a challenge. You know, it's very hard to gauge the time on porcelain. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a challenge. Dan, you guys doing a lot of porcelain these days? Uh, no, in full transparency, no, we're not. Um, in, 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 I keep, you know, I think we're like everybody else. Everybody keeps telling us that it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And I know it's on the coast and then in, in Florida and, and the such, and, and we're tucked away nicely in the, in the Midwest. So we let everybody else test out the trends. And then we, a couple years after that, we figure out if we're going to do them or not, but um, we're not. Uh, and um, I don't know, and, unless we're forced into it, I think what everybody says we're or something changes in the way that we can install it. Um, I don't know that that's the path we're going to go down. Yeah. understand that. I've got, I know that uh, when you get in different parts of the country, I've got some clients up in new England. And I think when you get up there and get near the bigger cities, I think you see more designer driven, architectural driven, you know, looking at what's in trends and magazines. And I'm seeing a lot more of, of that type of thing, uh, pop up in, in that geographic area. So in fact, I've got one shop, I think about 40, 50% of what they're doing is porcelain. So uh, it's, a, it's a big impact there. All right. I see somebody raising their hand. Uh, I think you're muted though. I see your face, but there you go. Hi, Mr. Young. How are you? Oh, hey, Deepa. How are you? I'm great. So Hi. I went to a porcelain training shop and uh, um, uh, uh, it was a MSI event and Park Industries was hosting it. And we went to that and we watched them cut a 36 inch vanity and it took them two hours and they had to, you know, when you're cutting porcelain, you have to change your blade on this saw. 
So I didn't understand like how that made any sense. A, you have to break your uh, workflow, change your blade, and then watch it waste away three hours to cut 36 inch vanity. Yeah, and it's uh, porcelain at, at the very least has a very steep learning curve. Um, I've, I've talked to some shops that have figured out how to take some of the factors that you've mentioned and make them better. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's it's still new and it's it's still a challenge. And while some folks claim they're doing a good job with it, I, I would believe it when I saw it. So what are you recommending that we get into it or we don't get into it? What is your recommendation, Mr. Young? I will give you the classic consulting answer. It depends. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm gonna dodge that one. What I, I what I don't do with clients is I don't recommend that they get into or get out of things. What I try to do is is ask them the right questions so that they can figure out the best answer for their business. Uh, for some businesses, porcelain is the worst thing in the world to get into. For other businesses, it's an opportunity, and it depends a lot on. I think at bottom end of the day, it depends on whatever you're running today. If you run it well and you manage it well and your processes are dialed in, your flow works well and, and, and you're tracking all your metrics and performing well, bringing in something new like porcelain, you will probably struggle with it at first, but you'll probably eventually get on top of it. If, however, you're struggling with you know, hitting your, your promised install dates, you're struggling uh, managing the interaction with your customers, uh, you, you've got a hard time filling vacancies in your shop and it's really hammering your, your capacity and everything seems to be a challenge and there's lots of drama in your shop, don't start something new like porcelain because it'll probably kill you. So the answer is different for, for different shops, just to be honest. Um, and, and what I don't, don't want to do is head down a porcelain rabbit hole here. Porcelain is really more of, a, of an example of the fact that when you've got these types of things happening, you know, you've got good intuition. You know that when something like a job of the raised bar top comes through, something with um, a lot of different complexities comes through your shop, you know that it costs you more to make it. You know that it has an impact on your capacity. Uh, and your intuition is good because you've been at this for a while in, in, in all cases, even, even in yours, Dan. I mean, you've got enough industry experience in general. You can see the impact of this type of thing, even though you're relatively new to the industry. The question is, how do you know you're charging enough? Uh, you've got good, in, good intuition, but I find a lot of times if we can get some pretty good numerical estimates, then we're able to come in and start um, putting some numbers to that intuition and that helps out quite a bit when we start making some of these decisions. And where this starts is the relationship between shop capacity and job pricing. Um, anybody have have any idea what we're talking about with shop capacity compared to job pricing, how those two would be related? All right. Well, let me let me tell you that. <laughs> That's why we're here. I'm going to simplify the, the, the discussion just to, to make it easy for my Clemson brain here. Let's assume that you've got a a shop that runs one shift a day, eight hours a day, five days a week. I know many of you are running differently than that, but let's just kind of keep a, a simple model here for discussion. So basically with your shop, you've got 40 hours a week to generate enough cash to cover your bills and still make a profit. All right. And so the relationship between shop capacity and job pricing is when you get something like Let's let's take a porcelain job with a raised bar top. Any of you who've done porcelain or even looked at it know that there's 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 more mit there's miters in that job six ways from Sunday. There's there there can be a huge amount of miters in a job like that, lots of time. But you know that when you get a complex job like that that comes through, and even the the example that uh, Deepa just shared with us, you know when that comes through, it's a lot like a snake swallowing a rabbit, right? 
And so the impact is it slows down your ability to generate cash. And I think we all know this intuitively. Does anybody disagree with that? No. Okay. So we know it's, it's, it slows down our ability to generate cash. So the, the relationship between job pricing and shop capacity is pricing doesn't determine capacity, but your shop has a capacity. And the way you price your jobs has to recognize and acknowledge the impact of a really complex job like we've just talked about and has to recognize the impact of that job on how much cash your shop can generate while that job's going through it. And so that's the relationship between shop capacity and job pricing. Now, you need to put some numbers around this so you can make good decisions. And the ideal solution is doing a detailed engineering analysis. Uh, Dan, you've probably done this some in, in, in your previous life, but um, detailed engineering analysis is, is like what I used to do back in my very early days of my career when I was an industrial engineer in, in the textile business. That's a matter of going in and measuring a job, uh, using standardized uh, objective time measurement techniques. There are lots of different ones you can use, but it means going in essentially and saying, all right, if I'm going to cut a one foot length with a saw and I'm going to cut porcelain, I'm going to cut, uh, I'm going to cut quartz, I'm going to cut quartzite, different types of granite, marble, they'll all have different amount of times it takes to cut that one foot. And then the same thing applies to your CNC time and your fab time and your polishing time. And so you'd go through and you'd determine collecting a lot of data, what those standard times are for those various factors. Any job that showed up, you could you could pretty well predict what time it should take to make that job and, and fabricate that job. The problem is, several problems with it. One is it take that's a lot of work and the average shop just doesn't have this type of skill set in the shop. And even, and especially smaller shops, you know, three, four, five, six million dollar shop. That's a huge amount of, of expense to have that done, whether you have somebody on staff or whether you contract it out. The other challenge is, is once you do this, now you've got to use the data. That's a different set of management tools. It's a different set of tracking performance on a regular basis. Uh, there's a lot of details with that. There's a lot of overhead. And to make it even worse, you know, you, you cut a certain type of, of quartzite today and you set that standard. And then a month from now, you get in another load of quartzite and it's from a different part of the quarry. So now it's harder or it's softer. And so the time's different. Or maybe it's the same quartzite color, but it came from a different quarry. And so it handles differently. Maybe it's a little more brittle. And so when you're going to fabricate it, it chips more. So you know, the things like that that require that you'd have to, once you start down this road, you've got to retain the overhead to constantly audit this, constantly monitor it. And the, the bottom line is there's just a huge amount of expense involved and only really large shops can even think about this. So that's, that's kind of the perfect technical solution, but it's a really expensive solution for most folks. Uh, I see Deepa raising her hand. Mr. Young, um, so when you ask the question, what is the capacity of your production shop? So uh, <clears throat> the dilemma that Ka is in is um, that basically we, during COVID times, there were no, not very many employees to find, uh, to find. So, so, and we had a lot of business um, uh, during that, those COVID months, okay? So our guys got used to working 56 hours because there was no choice, because there were no other employees to hire. So everybody right. worked 56 hours. So now, um, now that's a problem because now it's becoming a 56-hour culture and um, uh, our margins this, this year is, is, is less than what it was last year. Um, and now I don't know. Um, so when you say, what is your capacity? Are you suggesting a capacity based on 40 hours? Is it 56 hours? 
or like do we stop overtime now but now inflation is is rising so people will make less money it's so confusing sir <laughs> yeah that's uh you make a lot of very good points a lot of really good questions uh unfortunately some of those things are kind of out of the scope of what we get into here on, on this particular one our our session next month will be more about some of the labor issues but the short answer to what is your capacity it comes down to you deciding for your business for your culture for your employees what's it, what is your nominal or or normal schedule going to be? Is it 40 hours? Is it 50? You know, is, is the way you want to run your business? You want everybody to work, you know, 60, 70 hours a week. It's a decision you make as a business owner and there are trade-offs. Uh, there is no simple one answer. There's no one size fits all answer, unfortunately. Uh, and I'm not trying to be evasive. Well, yeah, I am trying to be evasive because I can't give you a straight yes, no answer on that, to be honest. I think you know, as a business owner, you've got to decide, all right, I, I know when my employees get past about 60 hours a week, I get a lot more uh, mistakes. I get a lot more problems. And so I've got to uh, I've got to I've got to knock that back to 50 hours a week or whatever. And I think that's a decision you've got to make from a, an hours, a work hour standpoint, an employee standpoint. When I talk about shop capacity, I'm talking more about your capacity to generate cash, because we talked about this detailed engineering analysis that is the technically correct way to determine capacity. But a, a simple and better solution is to do a rough cut. And that's what I want to, want to spend a few minutes talking about here, because I think it's useful to everybody to, to at least go through this exercise. The first part of the, of the rough cut to look at the impact of this snake swallowing a rabbit, so to speak, is to, is to figure out how much cash your business burns in a week. Uh, and what you do, what that means is take your, your P&L for, your, for, say, January, add up all the expenses for that. All right. So what you would do to, to determine how much cash your business burns in a week, take your P&L and add up all the expenses on the P&L, everything, everything that you spend a dime on. Get that total and then subtract out. What did you spend for materials that month? That's your slabs and your sheets. What did you have in sales commissions? You know, some companies have a strong commission structure. Some of them, it's not that big a deal, but pull out your sales commissions. And if you've got 1099s that you use um, that, you know, do your, maybe you contract out template, maybe you contract out your installs, but people that are not W-2s that show up on that P&L. And though that category of expenses, the, the materials, the sales commissions, the 1099s are kind of the big parts, the big components that they vary very closely, almost exactly with how many kitchens you put out in a week or in a month. Okay. So you take your total expenses, pull those out. And what you get, what you're left with is pretty much your cash burn rate. It's the part that stays pretty consistent month to month. Yeah. There's a little bit of impact on inflation. And if you were to add headcount or add a shift or, or if all your installers are W-2s, you're growing, you're adding install crew, that would change. But absent changes like that, that amount that's left, I call that operating expense, that's a pretty consistent burn rate month to month. Now, what I would do if you're going to do this exercise is do this for January of this year, do it for February, for March, and for April, and then do the calculations for each month, and then do an average. Find out what the average is for the last four months. That gives you a good baseline. And that's the that's kind of the baseline for which your, your, at which your business burns cash each month. You can divide that by 20 to get a daily rate, multiply it by five and get a weekly rate. You can figure out what your hourly rate is. But for the sake of our discussion, let's just look at the cash that your business burns in a week. Okay. Uh, so let's let's start off with that baseline. And then the net, any, any questions about that before I move on? Because this is a different way of looking at cost, profit, and expense than folks normally do. Okay. Um, so let's go to the next step. 
you figured out what your cash burn rate is for a week, and it's based on some averages. And then I want to walk you through kind of a, of a, of a thought exercise, so to speak. Let's take this, for example, this porcelain kitchen with the raised bar top. It's got miters nine ways from Sunday. And it's going to be, you know, like Deepa was talking about the demo, demo she saw where just making a vanity was, was a real good example of that snake swallowing a rabbit. Stop and think about, okay, for a week, if you only made that type of countertop, you didn't do any straight rectangles, you didn't do any quartz, no granite, no nothing else, just that one type of, of, of countertop, how many of those could you make in a week? And so you're starting to think about what your capacity is to produce product. All right. So that's kind of your 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 next step in this is to put that number on paper and then figure out, take a typical job you have that is representative of, of this type of work, figure out what your selling price is for that job, and then do the same kind of calculation that we did on our PL. We want to take out the material cost, whether you're doing square foot pricing or slab pricing, whatever that, that cost is you take out, not including any markup you have, just what you spent for the material. Okay. And then any sales commission you would take out. And then if you've got any 1099, you know, labor that you use there, you take that out. And so sales price for the job minus those factors is going to give you the cash that that job generates. And let's say that you've, you've figured out that for this porcelain kitchen with a raised bar top based on your shop and how you're set up that uh, for your shop, you know, normally you would make, um, say 20 jobs a week, four day, five days a week, you got two install crews. Normally you'd run with a mix of products, you'd get out about 20 kitchens a week. But if I were to, if you were to make just this porcelain job with a raised bar top, that 20 might drop to 15. It might drop to 12. It might drop to 10. All right. So you take that number and multiply it by this cash that that job generated. Again, sales price minus materials, minus commissions, minus any 1099 gives you the cash that's generated by that job times the number of jobs per week. And you're going to total number of dollars. Compare those dollars to that first step was how much cash you typically burn in a week. And you're going to come up with some interesting findings as you do that for this porcelain job with raised bar top, as you do this for a quartzite job as you do it for a, a, a Home Depot quartz job with just straight rectangles. That's all you've got. Uh, you can do this for all the different types of work that you normally do. And you can also do this by the different market segments that you have, because if you're doing a mix of B to B, business to business and B to C, which is retail, you'll have different markups on your job. So you'll have certain contractors who get certain price points based on volume and history. You'll have a, a different type of markup for Lowe's and Home Depot, a different markup for retail. And you can, if you take this, you know, do this exercise as a, of assuming, okay, if all I did was retail, what does that cash generation in a week look like compared to the cash that I burn in a week? If all I did was Home Depot, how does that look? And so walking through this analysis helps you understand the relationship between job pricing and shop capacity helps you understand the market segments that you're in, the types of materials that you have, and how they impact the capacity of your business to generate cash. Because at the end of the day, your business is all about generating more cash than you burn, right? Because if you generate more cash than you burn for a given time period, whether it's an hour, a day, a week, or a month, if you do that consistently, you're making a profit. 
And so when you look at capacity, you know, Deepa was asking some really good questions about manpower, work hours, and things like that. That's important. But their true measure of capacity is how much cash can you generate? And how do you do that consistently and do it effectively? And so this is a, it's a really simple exercise, but I think it's something that will help you look at your job pricing. You know intuitively that certain types of work takes, you know, takes more effort and time and you know it slows down flow of the shop. This is a way to start putting some numbers on what that looks like. Does this sound like a helpful type of exercise to do? Yes. Anybody see any problems with this exercise? Is this, this cause anybody any heartburn? No, not beyond just, you know, doing a lot of work. Um, you know, it depends on what type of shop you are as well. We're a little more custom. So then whatever the workflow is, it's a little determined by the customers and then which jobs you're right. willing to take. Well, yes. But you also know, within, even within custom, there are certain types of custom jobs. You know, there's the oh, yeah. eight bedroom, you know, 10 bathroom with an outside, you know, exterior kitchen, you know, kind of jobs. And then there's the 3,000 square foot house with, you know, four or five bedrooms and the same number of baths, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, you can you can still kind of chunk those down a little bit and put them in categories and, and do a quick and dirty analysis. Yeah, I agree. Okay. John, what do you... Uh, what do you think about this? That's, that's something I've been working on. You know, one of the reasons that I'm, I'm interested to hear what everybody else has to say, I've been going through that very exercise in my shop uh, the last couple of months, uh, but really trying to make a lot of changes in the last four or five years. You know, the thing that, that got me interested in the, being on this conference call was, you know, working own your business and in your business kind of thing. Um, I mean, this is what'll this what can set you free. Absolutely, I think you you, you put the, you hit the nail on the head. I, the the whole idea is to set you free so that your business is making you money and also giving you time to enjoy it. Right. Exactly. All right. So some of the things you can get out of this analysis, you know, one of the things I, that as I have done this type of thing with clients. They have all felt like, okay, yeah, I know intuitively this type of work, you know, has this kind of impact. But when you go to have a, a conversation, and and I maybe it was it was uh, maybe said that brought this up, you know, you're having a conversation with a contractor. A contractor doesn't want to take that price increase that you really need to push out. Then you know, knowing intuitively and having this feeling that it's more expensive versus knowing that, okay, you know, this type of work really is 10% more expensive or 20% more. And it has a huge impact on how much profit I can generate, how much cash I can generate in this business. Then that's the kind of thing that I think gives you more confidence to have a constructive conversation with that contractor. Um, so you, you're starting to quantify that intuition. And I think it, it, it helps you with those conversations. Anybody disagree with that? No. Okay. So one of the challenges is, okay, so you figured out, you put some numbers around this intuition and you know, your prices are going up, your costs are going up. And you know that as you get some of these more complex jobs, as you get these new materials and, and different things are happening, you know, now how do you handle rolling this out with customers? How many of you have had some good conversations with customers and been able to, without too much pushback, actually increase some of your prices and take care of some of this? Anybody had any success with that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So how did you have success with it? Um, well, on the retail side of things, it's a little easier because they're individual customers and not routine buyers. So they just kind of understand that overall costs are going up and it's 
a lot of it, a lot of that is what they want. Um, on the builder side, they've been fairly receptive. So the good builders that want to stay with you, and it's not all about just the dollar amount that you quoted, we've been fine with them. Now, if someone wants to find someone cheaper, they're always going to find someone cheaper. And that's kind of the impetus to, to go find someone cheaper. You know, yeah. They're going to leave you. But, yeah, there are definitely several aspects of that. I think, Sid, you've hit on some of those. Um, um, all right. So, Sid, I think you've hit some really good comments there. One of the things is, you know, you've got, is if you're dealing with contractors, we all know that some contractors Man, when they tell you that you tell them the tippets on this date and installs on that date, you know, and they say, okay, my kitchen is ready. You know, when that contractor talks to you that that, you know, this is contractor X, uh, you know, Bob the Builder contractor. And you know that when he says it's ready, it's going to be ready. Those cabinets are set. Painter's not going to be in the way. Tile guy's not going to be in the way. All that's fine. You've got other contractors you work with that they'll tell you it's ready, but you walk in and all of a sudden there's, you know, there's 14 people in your way. Uh, and, and the place is, a, is a, almost looks like a war zone. You know, the contractors, you know, Bob the Builder contractor actually does a great job as the one you want to keep. And so yeah. you could be that, you know, Bob the Builder has said, hey, I'd like, I've got some, some customers starting to request porcelain. That's not something that you have normally done or that you're comfortable doing. You've tried it and aren't happy with it. You might make the effort to go ahead and do that so you can keep Bob's business because having all the rest of the stuff that Bob does helps offset some of that cost. But if it's, you know, contractor Y who does a poor job and who is always causing you problems and always jerking your schedule around, then you may want to go ahead and push that additional price increase. And, you know, that's a way to sometimes use pricing as a competitive tool and not from the standpoint of trying to be lower to be more competitive. Sometimes being higher can make you more competitive. Anybody have a thought as to why that may be true? Be perceived as better. Well, perception of better. What else? One of the ways to make some of that competitive, uh, a competitive issue is, or competitive edge is, you know, if you've got a contractor you're dealing with and you know that he, in reality, starts costing you money, makes it tough for you to make good money. Yeah. If you increase prices to that contractor and encourage, it encourages him to go to a competitor. Now, if you've got tons of business and can afford to lose it, you know, that's great. That pushes that contractor over to uh, to somebody else and challenges their business. Um, yep. You know, some of these more complex jobs that maybe you don't do well, you haven't figured out how to do well in your shop, and you know your competition is going to struggle even more with it. You know, you start raising prices on that type of work, and it sends that type of work to them and disadvantages them. All right, so that's one way you can make that sort of a, of a competitive edge too. Um, you know, while things are good, you, you've got that flexibility. If uh, if the, the talking heads are correct, you know, as Jerry Clower would say, they're putting on a recession. Uh, you know, if, if we've got a downturn coming at us sometime in the next year or so, uh, when we hit that point, you won't have that luxury. But in the meantime, if you've done this analysis and you know that certain types of work, certain contractors, certain market segments really generate more cash for you in a week than other types of work, then if you've got a good backlog and you can start fine tuning your product mix, you can change the speed at which your business generates cash without changing anything else. Dan, does that sound like a, a, a strategy that might be productive and profitable? 
Yeah, I think that's uh, a lot of what we've focused on through your help, you know, and it's been it's been beneficial, even looking at some of the things you talk about, price increases and cost increases and things. Good, good. Yeah, it's. Uh, I remember having a, co- a conversation with the, the owners of the shop that we were running um, about 15 or so years ago. And uh, when I brought this up, their eyes kind of lit up and said, ooh, that's devious. And yeah, it, it can be a little mercenary. Uh, there is some risk. You got to understand your competition. You got to understand your business. You got to look ahead in your crystal ball and say, okay, how's the economy looking? Uh, you know, am I going to run the risk of not having enough work? There's, there's never a simple answer to these things, but they're all things to think about as potential strategy. And so we've talked about pricing a little bit and we've talked about doing some analysis, but the flip side of this coin too, or, or at least another factor is something that I think um, that Dan and Sarah, maybe John brought up was, you know, looking at operational performance. Um, there are some things that you can look at in your shop as you find out, okay, this portion work, yeah, I knew it was tough. I didn't realize it was this tough. Now I got some data to tell me in numbers how tough it is, you know, what are some things you could do for once you decide or discover just how tough certain types of work are? Let's take Porcelain, for example. What are some things you can do to make that less negatively impactful for your business? And I think Deepa talked about one of them. Well, I'll give you an example. Um, I mentioned I've got a client who's, I think about 40, 50% of their work is Porcelain, and they were struggling. I mean, they were cutting all their miters with a manual bridge saw. And you know, if you know if you work with porcelain at all, you know what kind of a challenge that is. Um, one of the things they did was having after having done an analysis like this, they've been debating, you know, should I go out and buy that miter saw or should I not? You know, a, a special machine that's designed just to do miters. And once they did this analysis and they said, okay, if we buy this saw, here's how the analysis changes. And I think within about 15 minutes, they were stroking a PO for the machine. Because it was very obvious that by changing their processes to, to reduce the negative impact of some of that types of work, then they would have a big impact on their bottom line. So this can help justify that type of decision as well. Those are all factors to kind of keep in mind as you do this type of analysis. A lot of different ways to, to leverage that in your business. There is no one size fits all, uh, but they're all important. And one of the things I would encourage you to do, I know, you know, a lot of folks I talk to want to say, hey, you know, I, I got a competitor over here. He's, he's eating my lunch because his prices are so low. Every one of you have got, depending on how large the area, metropolitan area that you're in, you've got at least one, if not several competitors that are, you know, three or four or five guys with a, with a blue ripper, a, a handful of side grinders, a pickup truck working out of a rental unit, and they're eating your lunch on price. And they always will. You can't compete with them because their overhead is so low. They just, there's a certain segment of the market that they service. They, they probably do, you know, pretty decent work. Some of them may do really good work, but you'll never be competitive with them. At the end of the day, you got to decide are you going to stay in business or not. You got to play to your strengths. Uh, I'll share a, a related story to you. I'm, a, I'm in a little bit of a, a somewhat rural area. Uh, my dad was born and raised on a farm. I lived on a farm, and, and I like good old homemade country sausage. Found a guy near here that makes it. He makes it one day a week. And I went to go pick some up the other day, and uh, he said, man, said I just, I hate to tell you, but I, I had to go up a quarter pound on my sausage. His cost is just killing me. I just, I really hate to do that. I just, I'm scared I'm going to lose customers. And I looked at him, and I said, Rick, thank you. I really appreciate you doing that. He looked at me like I had lost my cotton picking mind. He said, what, what do you mean? I said, I'm, I, I said, man, my dad, you know, raised on a farm, made a lot of sausage. He was in the meatpacking business. 
knows sausage really well. He loves your sausage. My dad's in his late 80s. And almost every time I go see him, I'm taking him some of your sausage. If you don't, Rick, if you don't raise your prices, then you can't stay in business. If you can't stay in business, I can't make my 88-year-old dad happier by bringing him some of your sausage. That's going to make him sad and make me sad. So I appreciate you raising your prices. You know, if you folks think about what we're doing in this business, we're, you know, my wife and I did a, a kitchen remodel last year and, and you know, we, it changed the way we look at our entire house. It's a hundred year old house and you can imagine some of the challenges that are involved. And when you make a significant remodel, it can change how you enjoy your house. And we, we comment on a regular basis what a great investment it's been and the crowning jewel in that remodel are these countertops. This is something that, that we in this industry make that it, yeah, we're not solving world hunger. We're not solving cancer. You're not curing cancer, but we're having an impact on people's lives every day with something that they use every day. It's the, it's the, the, the top where they, you know, they feed their family and they bring their family together over meals. And it's, it's the crowning jewel in their kitchen. And if you don't pass along these increases, and if you don't have a good understanding of how these different variations we've talked about impact your ability to generate cash, you're at a high risk of not being here during the next downturn. While things are good, you got to make money, you got to bank cash, you got to pay off debts, you got to get ready for whatever's going to come at us in the next year or two. And I think knowing these types of things is really key because you got to be strong to get through whatever's coming through us, to us next. So I hope this has been helpful for you folks. I hope it's been something that's worthwhile. Have you got any questions about what we've talked about? Now, does anyone run any kind of metric to see how the shop is performing to see if you're doing the same output, you know, between different job types. Anybody on the call got something like that that they track? Or if you're, you know, you take on a job that might over, like you said, you're going to overload your own shop by a good sale. Every sale looks good until you can't get it done. <laughs> okay. You know. All right. Uh, John, uh, Dan, anybody got any metrics there that you guys think would be helpful? Uh, looks like Dan had to drop off. Okay. Okay. You know, one thing you can do is you can start tracking. <clears throat> we talked about this rate at which your shop burns cash each week. Mm -hmm. You can start tracking that on a daily basis because you can take that week, divide it by five. Now you got days, right? Yes. So you can track that. You could you when you make that calculation, <clears throat> what you're doing is saying, okay, today my shop burns on average, you know, five thousand dollars a day in cash. Tomorrow, or not tomorrow, Monday, well, Tuesday, because it's a holiday weekend, it's going to burn $5,000 a day in cash. Wednesday, $5,000. So you know what that's going to look like. So what you can start to do is track, all right, how much cash did we generate yesterday? Mm -hmm. What installs did we complete? And the rule is, if you're going to score this, you can't score the cash that you generated unless that job's totally complete and that customer's happy. Okay. So you broke a top, got to go back and do a remake or something. You got a splash. You didn't have enough. You got to go back to shop and get it. If that sure. job's not complete yesterday, that score is zero for that job. Yeah. Yeah. But so you score those every day using those rules. And, and there's some systems that you can use that, that help with that. And it can be part of your daily management routine, which is really good. But, you know, take a few minutes every morning and say, okay, what did we complete yesterday? Sales price of the job minus materials. Minus sales commissions, minus 1099. Here's the cash we generate. We call that throughput. 
And so yeah. you can score throughput for the jobs you completed yesterday, compare that to your daily operating expense cash burn rate and track that every day. And one of the cool things about that is that you get, let's say you've got a, a three or four week backlog of, of installs. Your next open install date is three or four weeks out. That means if you're sitting on about the uh, 12th, 14th, 15th of the month, by the middle of the month somewhere, and you're doing this regularly, you can sit down and predict with a pretty good degree of accuracy what your profit and loss is going to be for the end of that month while you're in the middle of the month. Yeah. Now you so can get we, proactive. Yeah, we've done we've never for, forward done it forward, but uh, on a weekly basis, I do throughput accounting. I don't know. It was an article from Slippery Rock. I don't know if you wrote it or someone else. It's been five, six, seven years ago. Yeah. But it's been good. But all we do is, you know, you have, you aggregate the sales for the week minus your cost of material because you've got to write up the bill that way. Mm-hmm. And do average payroll and average overhead and do it down the line. And so get an estimated net profit for the week and see if you made money or not. Yeah, I, I like doing this every day. Um, because um, you can you can say okay did we win the day yesterday and and you know you're sitting on let's say you're sitting on Tuesday you can look ahead and say okay so what is our opportunity to generate a profit on Thursday two days from now you know you do this day by day and you start driving this into your scheduling and start driving this into you know other aspects of your business and now you're starting to kind of to get in that mode of Think about driving a car. You're kind of looking at your dashboard and watching the performance of things. You're looking out the windshield, looking at where you're going and how you can change where you're going versus looking in the rearview mirror saying, okay, it's it's now the the 10th of May. How did we do in April? Yeah. And why didn't we do better? Or how did we do so well? You know, because you're trying to remember what happened weeks ago versus what happened yesterday. Sure. And so it's a lot easier to get cause and effect on performance and the causes of those performance. When you get better cause and effect, you know, now you're in a position to, to start making real change in your business. So that daily look, I think, is really important from a management standpoint. Okay. All right. So we're, we're close to the top of our hour here. Uh, again, I'm happy to hang on and answer any questions folks have got. Um, any, any other questions that are popping up in your mind? No. Anybody else? Okay. Um, as you go through this, you will, uh, you know, you may have questions. You may want to try this on your own. And then when you do, uh, you may have questions. Feel free to reach out to me. Um, I think it's important as business owners to know, and having been one, uh, I resemble this remark. I think it's important to, to admit that our businesses are running the way that we've designed them to run. As owners, that fact is true. And if we're not happy with how they're running, then we got to change the way they're designed to run. And so if you're struggling with any of that, uh, if you'd like to have some conversations about how to do some of these calculations, you got any questions, uh, my contact information is on screen. I'm happy to talk with you anytime. Um, if you want to get a little deeper, uh, I do offer a free customized assessment. It takes about an hour on the phone. We'll do a deep dive into your business and I can start recommending some ways that you can start to improve how your business is designed to run. So if that's of interest, uh, again, hit the, hit the website, uh, hit the link for get an assessment. Be happy to set that up for you. Uh, folks, I appreciate you showing up. Thanks for taking time out of your day and time out of your week. 
I hope this has been helpful for you. Um, the, I always like having good conversation. I like you folks talking with each other and sharing your own ideas because I think you learn, you know, some a lot of times even more than what what I can offer when you start sharing ideas with each other. I think that's really important. So I would encourage you as you look at, you know, NSI, ISPA, SFA, Slab Fabbers, Rockheads, all those groups that are out there. Find something that you like, something that you can, um, you know, you feel good, uh, you know, with the group and, and with what they're doing and meet other fabricators, talk to them and um, and, and learn from each other. It's a, it can be lonely being a business owner out there, no matter what the business is. And so you get a chance to talk to other folks. I think there's there's good benefit. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fabricators Coach podcast. If you've got any additional questions about this particular episode or anything else, please check us out at fabricatorscoach.com. Thanks. Have a great day.